Uh, as you know, this morning is Mother's Day, and we want to take, take the opportunity um, to say Happy Mother's Day to our moms who are here. You know, in a culture that is insisting that there is no difference between males and females, and that there are no difference in roles between mothers and fathers, we're grateful this morning for you, you moms who are here who are modeling to us the tenderness and the love of God and the nurturing of God um, and, uh, and raising up our children. And we give thanks for you this morning. And so we want to honor you. So, so if you're a mom in this place, would you go ahead and stand? Um, and, and more than just, a, I'm more, yeah, go ahead. Let's give them a round of applause. But, but I don't just want to applaud them. This morning, I want you ladies to remain standing for a moment. Um, and in a moment, I, I want to pray for you this morning and pray God's blessing upon you. But in addition to that, I want to acknowledge um, others who are here today for whom Mother's Day is a difficult day. Uh, some of you women who are here may be desiring to have a child and you've not been able to give birth. And Mother's Day is hard for you. Others today have experienced miscarriages, perhaps even in this past year. And this is a hard Mother's Day for you. There are still others who have lost children of all ages here this morning, and Mom's Day for you is, is tough today. And then there are those who have lost their moms this past year, and so our hearts are with you. But I want to take a moment and pray for all of those, but those who are standing in particular, we want to bless you and ask for, for God's continued grace and strength in your lives and, and uh, for the example that you set for us. And so would you, would you bow your heads as, as I pray for these ladies? God, in a culture today that says that, that moms are no different than dads, that, that we can do everything they can do, they can do everything we can do, that anybody can be uh, a, um, give birth to a child, we know that your word and creation itself say something different. And these women who are in our presence this morning um, are... God, they're gifts. They're gifts to our church. They're gifts to our family. I give thanks for my mom and for my wife and, and for every mother here today. And we just pray for your strength and for your blessings upon them today, that they would feel appreciated and loved. And throughout this coming year, that you would continue to guide them and direct them. I pray also for those who are, who are not standing or perhaps the, those who are standing who are also in a category where this is also a difficult day, whether they've wanted to have a child and haven't been able to, they've, they've miscarried, they've lost a child, or they've lost their mother this year. I pray that um, your Holy Spirit might be the comforter and your Holy Spirit might bring uh, peace to their hearts this morning. Lord, we give you thanks now for moms and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, ladies. You may be seated. I also think it's important that we take a moment before we open God's Word today and acknowledge from the pulpit the events that are happening and have happened in the week that have passed in the media. I read a statistic this week that said that only 4%, and I don't know how in the world they came up with this, but only 4% four four of churches actually address abortion from the pulpit, and I think that is a shame. Um, and over these past few days, as we have witnessed the leak of this draft majority opinion by the Supreme Court in response to this case that may now, it looks like, overturn Roe versus Wade, I think it's important that from our pulpits we speak to that. And as Christians, there are a couple things I just want you to keep in mind um, as you uh, go through this time. You know, I've seen some, some uh, posts this past week. Uh, I've seen some hateful words on both sides of uh, this issue that have been directed at each other, in particular on social media. 
And I want to remind you this morning, and I want to encourage you to weigh your words carefully before you put them out there into the public realm. Because as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, we need to be speaking truth, but grace ought to be like an airbag for that truth. We need to be loving and speaking truth at the same time. So be careful, please. But, but at the same time, I want to encourage you, Christian, this morning to not sit back and not take an opinion, not, to not sit back and be quiet because there are those who are speaking and I think we need, our world needs to hear from biblically-minded Christians today who stand for the right of life. And I want to encourage you to do that, but carefully and prayerfully weigh your words even as you do. Um, and I also want to remind us as Christians, I think we also need to be supporting the processes that our Constitution have put into place. And we need to be encouraging a, a country in which leaks like this do not occur and the value and the sacredness of our system and this democracy that we believe in are protected because once they begin to be undermined as they are, our very freedoms are at risk. So please, I encourage you, Christian, let's take a stand. Do it in a graceful way, but stand nonetheless. With that said, let's turn our, our attention this morning. We're in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And before we begin that, I want to start off with a parable uh, this morning. It's a Russian parable that tells of a hunter who raised his rifle and took careful aim at a large bear. When about to pull the trigger, the bear spoke in a soft soothing voice. Isn't it better to talk than to shoot? Asked the bear. What do you want? Let us negotiate. Lowering his rifle, the hunter replied, I want a fur coat. Good, said the bear. That's negotiable. I only want a full stomach. So let us negotiate a compromise. They sat down to negotiate, and after a time, the bear walked away alone. The negotiations had been successful. The bear had a full stomach, and the hunter had his fur coat. Took a few of you a moment to get that. Sometimes compromise can be deadly. Such is the case with sin. People magazine years ago undertook a part serious, part tongue-in-cheek survey of its readers on the subject of sin. The results were published in what they called a syndex, with each sin rated by a sin coefficient. The outcome is amusing and instructive. Sins like murder, child abuse, and spying against one's country were rated very high at the top of the list, while sins like lying and swearing, they were much lower down the list. Parking in a handicapped spot without a permit was rated very high, surprisingly, while living together before marriage scored much lower in severity. Cutting in front of someone in line was deemed worse than divorce. Yes, the survey concluded that readers said, get this, they commit on average 4.64 sins per month. Now, if you believe that survey, then you should probably get rid of me very quickly because I commit more than 4.64 sins per month. Like Paul in 1 Timothy 1.5, my confession must remain that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I think what the survey points to, though, is the fact that people are very good in general at justifying their sins, at rationalizing their behaviors. We're really good at covering up our sins. We're good at overlooking them. We're good at pointing out the faults in others while overlooking 
the ones in our own lives, and we're good at comparing ourselves to others and saying, well, we're not as bad as our neighbors. We're not as bad as our co-workers. Tragically, what the survey points to is an alarming rate of compromise. Compromise not just among non-Christians, but among Christians. A compromise of standards, a compromise of upright living, a compromise with sin. And when we compromise in small, seemingly insignificant ways with sin, before we know it, our perception of sin is skewed. Someone once said that sin will always take you further than you want to go, and it will keep you longer than you want to stay. Let me repeat that because those are words worth writing down. I wrote them down a long time ago and they've stuck with me. Sin will always take you further than you want to go and it will keep you longer than you want to stay. Like the hunter with the bear, if we compromise with sin, we will find ourselves in a trap, a trap that's deadly. This morning, I want to ask you a very serious question. How much sin have you been overlooking in your life? It's not a popular topic to talk about, but we deal with unpopular topics here at Calvary Hills Baptist Church. And and so I want to ask you, to what degree have you compromised the standards of righteousness and holiness that are clearly outlined for us in Scripture? We're in the book of Revelation. If you're new with us, we are going through a seven-week series on the churches in Revelation. In the interest of time and because there's so much to unpack in our text this morning, we're not going to do much recapping this morning. In fact, if you're new and you want to learn more about where we've been, what I would ask you to do is go back. You can go to the website. You can go to our Facebook page, and you can watch those sermons from the past couple of weeks. But I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me, and we're going to be reading Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And as we've done for the past couple of weeks, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. We stand outside a sign of honor and respect for his living word. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And the Lord add his blessing to this reading from his holy word. You may be seated. This morning, the outline of our message is rather similar to where we've been over the past couple of weeks. Should be becoming familiar to you. We're going to look at the correspondence, the commendation, the condemnation, the counsel, and finally, the consolation. 
And so let's begin with the correspondence this morning, and let's talk for a few moments about the city in which this church that is addressed resided, the city of Pergamum. The ancient city of Pergamum was located along the Aegean Sea in the modern-day town of Bergama, Turkey. It was founded approximately 500 years before the birth of Christ, and it was a military fortress. It's said that Alexander the Great was to, had actually stored billions of dollars of gold in Pergamum because of its strategic location on top of a 1,000-foot hill. From Pergamum, you could see in multiple directions, so it was very difficult for an enemy to approach Pergamum and surprise them. For that reason, it became the capital city of the region. Of all the cities that have been mentioned so far, this city in particular draws out significance and, and very forceful words from Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. The forces of evil, they have a particularly strong hold on this city, and it's not just demonic powers, it's not just evil spirits, but Satan actually resides there, Jesus says. It's, it's where his throne is. That's the city where these Christians live in. We're going to unpack exactly what that looked like, and I want to spend a couple of minutes really camping out on that because it's significant that Jesus pays so much attention to the city itself in a way that he has not done to any other city so far in our series. Historians tell us that Pergamum was the center of many things, and interestingly, many of the reasons that people visited Pergamum were tied to the worship of false gods and to the existence of numerous spectacularly beautiful temples to these gods that were there. If you have your sermon outlines, I'd encourage you to follow along. It's on the back side of your bulletin. If you need a pen, hopefully you can find one there in the pew rack in front of you. Pergamum, first of all, we see was a center of fulfillment. A center of fulfillment. Citizens and visitors sought to find fulfillment in the temple of the god Dionysus. Believed to be the son of Zeus, Dionysus supposedly offered his followers life after death. Sound familiar? And meaningful, abundant life on earth. Again, does it sound familiar? But here's where his message completely changes from what we know of ours. This life was offered to those who through indulgence in raw wine and meat, or raw meat and wine and sexual immorality, worshiped this God. According to their teachings, followers who drank excessively became one with this God. So, worshipers, they would gather around the altar, they would gorge themselves with raw meat that had been offered as a sacrifice, and they would drink until they became intoxicated. During their festivals, women would drink wine and run through the hills screaming, dancing, and committing sexual immorality. The worship of this God was so wild that it was actually outlawed in Rome because it was too immoral. This temple was there, and people came to find fulfillment. Pergamum was also a center for healing. It, Pergamum had a hospital. It was perhaps like the Mayo Clinic of our day. It was state-of-the-art. It focused on spiritual, physical, and psychological healing. 
But unlike the hospitals of our day, this was also a temple. It was the home of the great serpent god, Asclepius. That serpent can be seen on many of our healthcare symbols today. You might not realize that if you're wearing one of those medical bracelets and you see serpents wrapped around a rod, it goes all the way back to these ancient gods. In this hospital, there were sleep chambers. Long before Freud, there was dream therapy. And worshipers and patients, they would come to this hospital, this temple, and they would walk through this long tunnel on the way to a solarium. And in that tunnel, there were apertures through which priests would speak words of hope into your life. And then when you got into the solarium, you would lay down. They would give you some sort of drug that would induce a deep sleep. And get this, some of you moms in particular perhaps are not going to like this. They would then release hundreds of non-poisonous serpents to slither around and slither over your sleeping body. And it was believed that when the serpent God came in contact with you, you would be instantly healed. Moms, any of you going to be signing up to go and have that therapy anytime soon? Third, Pergamum was a center of forgiveness. A center of forgiveness. The goddess Demeter was said to forgive the sins of her followers who immersed themselves in bull's blood. And so if you had a particularly guilty conscience, you might come to Pergamum and visit the, the, the temple to Demeter and, and seek forgiveness and release from your guilt. And you could go and be immersed from in the blood of a bull and be guaranteed by them that you were forgiven. Fourth, Pergamum was also a center of provision. In addition to forgiveness, Demeter was the goddess of grain who supposedly uh, provided food. And so if you needed food, if you desired a good crop for the season, you might go to Pergamum and you would pray to the goddess of grain to provide you with food. Fifth, Pergamum was a center of patriotism. Like Smyrna, Pergamum held their emperor and his worship in very high esteem. And while Smyrna, as we learned last week, had earned the right to build a temple to Domitian in that contest, Pergamum was the first city to ever build a temple to the emperor. And there, the people worshipped the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus. They not only declared him as divine, but they claimed him as their God and Savior, as their God and King. And finally, Pergamum was a center of religion. Perhaps the most notable feature of this city was that at its high point, there was a temple that could be seen from any direction of approach. It was a temple to the god Zeus. Zeus was the chief deity of all deities, the chief god. He was the, the god of the sky and weather, of thunder. He was thought to be the king of all gods. And so his temple sat above all others as if looking down upon all the other gods and the rest of the city. And this is important. It was shaped like a throne. At the highest point of this ancient city sat a throne visible to everyone. 1,800 years later, this is interesting, a little, little Indiana Jones-ish, this throne-shaped temple was excavated. It was taken stone by stone to Berlin, Germany, where it was reassembled in a museum. And in 1930, that display was opened to the public. Just a few years after that, the Nazi Party's chief architect, 
was commissioned by Hitler to design the parade grounds in Nuremberg for Hitler's rallies using this throne as a model for his own. To the church in this city, Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan dwells, where Satan's throne is. Like he's done in the other letters we've read, Jesus then identifies himself, and he does it in a way that is significant to the readers of this letter. We read this, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. This image held particular significance for the church in Pergamum because the governor of the province of Asia Minor lived in their city, and that governor was, had what was known as the right of the sword. That governor had the right to decide who would live and who would die. And as that governor's procession would make its way down the street, like a motorcade today, a soldier would walk in front of that governor holding an enormous sword in the air as a reminder of the power of the sovereignty of this governor. And to this church, Jesus says, I, not the governor, am the sovereign with a double-edged sword. The sword of which Jesus speaks is the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 tells us it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirits and of joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word brings salvation and it executes judgment. And Jesus reminds this church that he, not the Roman governor, has the sword with which they ought to be concerned. As he's done with each church so far, Jesus goes on to give them some commendations, some words of praise before he addresses the issue in the church. And let's look at the two things he says, beginning in the second sentence of verse 13. Yet, Jesus continues, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. I know where you live, Jesus says, in the center of Satan's kingdom, where Satan has his throne, and yet you've held fast. You've held on, even, even when it wasn't easy. If you're following along in your outlines, here's what we see, a persevering witness in the midst of persecution. Even though they lived where Satan had his throne, they had held fast to Christ's name. That's quite a commendation when you are vastly outnumbered. Humanly speaking, Satan had the advantage in Pergamum. He controlled the government and most people, yet these Christians held tightly to the name of Jesus. And while it would have been easy for them to escape persecution by just simply bowing the knee every so often to the emperor and and just worshiping, even if their heart wasn't in it, these Christians said, no, Jesus Christ is my Savior, my God, and I will not worship. What's more, they didn't deny the faith. This refers to doctrine. Antipas, who Jesus mentions by name in this letter, was a believer in Pergamum who gave his life to defend the truth and was the first known Asian to die for refusing to worship the emperor. This church was defending its doctrine against the attacks of Satan himself, and through it all, their witness had persevered even in the midst of persecution. Jesus commends them for it. 
Unlike Smyrna, however, as we studied last week, this letter does in fact include condemnation. What we find in verses 14 to 15 is a permissive spirit of idolatrous compromise. It's important to note that not all the Christians in this church were guilty of the compromise we're going to see. Jesus actually calls out some of them, but here's the problem. The entire church tolerated these compromisers. While Satan hadn't been able to destroy this church, he was making inroads among the church. Jesus refers to these compromisers as those who hold to the teachings of Balaam and those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. In order to understand what he's talking about, we've got to go back to the Old Testament. I doubt that any of you, if you read this at at face value, would really have a clue what he's referring to. In fact, it takes some some time to go back and and dig into Scripture and say, what's he talking about here? Well, if you go back to to the Old Testament, you have to go back to the book of Numbers. The children of God were on their way from the wilderness to the promised land, and in their path was the land of Moab. The king of Moab has heard about the Israelites. The Israelites' reputation had preceded them because God had been doing great things through the Israelites and and bringing about victories that they didn't deserve. And this king of this foreign land heard about that. He sees how many of them there are, and he knows that his army does not stand a chance against the Israelites in battle. And so he calls upon one of his prophets, a man named Balaam, and he pays him handsomely to go and pronounce a curse over the Israelites. Balaam, as you may recall from that ancient story that you may have heard in Sunday school, gets on his donkey, and he heads out toward the Israelites to deliver this curse. But on the way, an angel appears in the road and blocks the road, but only the donkey can see the angel. Balaam doesn't know why the donkey won't move, and so what does Balaam begin to do? He begins to strike that donkey, begins to beat that donkey, and finally God opens the mouth of the donkey, and the donkey speaks. As a result of that encounter, Balaam turned his donkey around. He went back to the king, and he said, King, I I can't curse those that God has already blessed. If you flipped over just a few chapters later in Numbers, you find that Israel has invaded Moab. In chapter 31, Moses says, immoral men among them followed Balaam's advice. And from what we can surmise, before Balaam left the king, he gave him some advice, something like this. Well, I can't curse these people. Let me tell you how you can cause them to invite a curse upon themselves. Send some of your most beautiful women of the land out to the Israelite men to seduce them and have them take some stakes with them. And some, have them take stakes in particular that have been sacrificed to idols. After all, you all know that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach and even more through a good stake. Can I get a good amen, men? There's no way that these men, I think Balaam said, will be able to resist a good steak delivered by a beautiful woman. If my instincts are right, I think Balaam said, they'll justify their behavior. They'll compromise their beliefs. They'll say something like, I know it's not right. I know it will displease God. But, but, but look where I've been for all these years wandering around in the wilderness. I've been surviving on manna. The steak looks so good. And, and boy, the, the women around us are looking all too familiar. These women are beautiful. We haven't seen anything like them before. Balaam says, they'll eat the steaks. They'll indulge their pleasures with the women, and then they will invite a curse 
upon themselves by their own God. And that's exactly what happened. Because of their sin, we're told that God punished Israel and 24,000 people died. Jesus says that kind of compromise, it's crept into the church in Pergamum. There are those among you who say a little bit of sin, a little bit of indulging now and then to the pleasures of the flesh, assuming that you can fix it later on down the road, it doesn't hurt. After all, God's grace is abundant, is it not? Jesus points to the examples of the Israelites and Balaam as a reminder that compromise has deadly consequences. Jesus also says that this church has permitted those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. We read two weeks ago that the Ephesians hated the works of the Nicolaitans. Here in Pergamum, there are church members who hold to their teachings. Not only does this church not hate these teachings, but they're actually church members who are living by them. It's hard to tell for sure what the, who the Nicolaitans were, and we can only speculate. There are differing opinions on this. But I think as we look back at Acts chapter 6 and we read of Nicholas, we learn through, it seems that his followers fell into a way of thinking that was full of compromise. Many commentators suggest that they were free thinkers, that they were very open to embracing new ideas and new concepts. It seems that they taught that they could be a Christian and play nicely with the other temples and religions. That it was okay to, to attend worship on Sunday morning at church, and then maybe Monday go to one of the temples and be with your friends. That, that having a foot in both worlds wasn't a big deal. Essentially, they believed that you could kind of live in the pagan world and in the Christian world at the same time. And by doing so, they had robbed the cross of its power. And they drained the power of the Spirit to transform a believer's life. So the Balaamites, they reasoned away their sin by saying a little sin won't hurt. I can justify my actions. It's okay every once in a while to indulge. I've been good for so long. And really, when I compare myself to others, I still only commit 4.64 sins per month. I'm not that bad. And the Nicolaitans, well, they were open-minded. And they were willing to embrace multiple faiths and ways of thinking. They were comfortable with having one foot firmly planted in the world and another in the faith. They were idolaters. And while Jesus' condemnations are few, they are gravely serious. Here's the counsel Jesus provides to this church. Look at verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. We all want Jesus to come and visit, don't we? But we don't want him to come and make war against us. To this church, Jesus says, you've allowed people to come in with false doctrines and you haven't stood up to them. You haven't challenged them. You haven't endeavored to correct them. It's one thing to invite the lost to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ at church. It's another to embrace their sinful lifestyles. I think this has less to do with who's in the pews than with what we teach and what we tiptoe around because of who's in the pews. A couple of weeks ago, I said there should be a place in our pews for those identifying with any of the letters of LGBTQ or any of the other letters, and I absolutely believe that. But let me also be clear that while we should invite them in, their presence should never deter us from speaking the truth in love. 
the church in Pergamum had apparently compromised to allow members to stay put and love them and not offend them. Perhaps they'd so watered down the message that those who had these other teachings weren't made to feel uncomfortable. Perhaps they'd avoided talking about the difficult subjects in order not to step on anyone's toes. And when it came time to select teachers and committee leads, they didn't dare to stand up and say no. Jesus says, if you don't address this, I will. And you won't like the way I deal with it. Come back to the text with me. As we draw this letter to a conclusion, the letter includes the same invitation as have the others. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then Jesus says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. If you're following along in your outline, here's the consolation, eternal fellowship and identification with Christ for those who overcome. The, the, the hidden manna and this white stone with a name on it, they're, rather, they're, they're references that we can't be entirely sure what the meaning behind them is. The promise of hidden manna, according to one commentator that I read that I respect, G.K. Beale, is this. It's a metaphorical portrayal of end-time fellowship and identification with Christ, which will be consummated at the marriage supper of the Lamb. As the Israelites, they should have relied on God's heavenly food rather than partaking in meat that was offered by the Moabite women. The church must remain and must be sustained by the one who in John 6.35 said he was the bread of life. And we, When we remain sustained by him, we can look forward to an eternal feast in heaven. And the promise of the stone, that may have had something to do with the fact that a white stone was commonly associated with a vote of acquittal, while a black stone was a vote of guilt. And what's more, white pebbles were often used as admission tickets to events in the first century. Christ may have been saying, those who do not compromise but overcome will gain admission to my kingdom and to a banquet where I will feed them heavenly manna. This morning, nearly 2,000 years after this letter was written, the type of compromise that we see in Pergamum is alive and well. It's alive when Christians claim that as long as we call on the name of Jesus and we love each other, everything else is okay. When it's taught that you should just accept everyone and not hold anyone accountable for their sins. Besides, sin some teach today is an antiquated, irrelevant, offensive concept. We want to call it brokenness, dysfunctionality, whatever we call it, but we don't want to call it what Scripture calls it. So let's get with the times, some say. If we just love each other and we'd stop calling what they do sin, we'd be a whole lot better off and our churches would grow. When Christians buy into this way of thinking, the compromise we see in Pergamum once again rears its ugly head. It's also alive when Christians deny that the Bible is the sole infallible source of authority for Christian faith and practice. Like the Nicolaitans of old, too many churches, 
And those who claim the name of Christ today are willing to dismiss texts altogether, to call certain texts out of touch, irrelevant with our culture. And instead, they bend to social opinion and they found their convictions on feeling and popular thought. That road is a slippery slope that ends in destruction. In more ways than we'd like to admit today, nearly 2,000 years later, the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans are alive and well. In more ways than we'd like to care to acknowledge, we have compromised. And sadly, we've learned to live with sin in our own lives. My wife had a great aunt who lived in New York City her pretty much entire life, up until the last couple of years. She never married, and and she had this efficiency apartment that was a stone's throw from the United Nations building. None of our family had ever actually visited her there. She instead would come to see the extended family a couple times a year. We lived in western New York at the time. I was the pastor of a church outside of Buffalo, New York. And, and one of those gatherings, our family decided that Annie Arlene was just getting too old to live by herself anymore. And so we decided to move her back up to western New York to be close to those that she knew and loved so we could watch over her. And so knowing that she lived in this little apartment that was like 12 by 12, just a single room efficiency apartment, I said to Erica's uncle, I said, why don't you and I just take a couple of minivans, we'll go down, get her stuff, and bring her back. After all, how much could she possibly have in a 12 by 12 apartment? I think you're starting to get the picture where this is going to go. There were about eight weeks between the day we decided to do this move and the actual move date itself. And every week, for several weeks, Annie Arlene would pick up the phone and call um, Erica's uncle and tell her that she'd forgotten about another piece of furniture that she owned. Initially, it was a dresser. Then it was another cabinet. Then a large wall-sized mirror. And the list just kept on growing. And I, I began to scratch my head and ask myself, how is that possible? How could she forget when she lives in such a small space that she owns this additional furniture? Well, I would soon find out. When we arrived, we couldn't even get her door open more than just a few inches in order to squeeze in. And what we found was literally trash that was five to six feet deep, the entire apartment. It was no wonder furniture was hidden because you couldn't see it through the trash. We worked for several hours endeavoring to make a dent on this mess. If you've ever seen that episode, Hoarders, this should have been an episode. And we were soon confronted by an angry landlord because we were filling up the dumpster. I'll never forget Annie Arlene's response to his anger, and this is the reason I tell you the story. She said to me, I don't understand why he's mad. Trash collection is included in my rent, and I've never used it. Sadly, Annie Arlene had grown accustomed to trash. She got used to it. It didn't make her feel uncomfortable anymore, and perhaps she didn't even notice it. I wonder this morning how much trash you've allowed in your life. Church, as we prepare to close, can I ask you, where have you compromised? Are you like the Israelites who who were approached by those Moabite women, and you thought, you think to yourself, you know what, it's okay. His grace is sufficient for me, so I can go ahead and indulge because I know that forgiveness 
is just around the corner. I can sin now, and I can go running back to the cross tomorrow, and all will be okay. And so you continue down this road. Or perhaps you're like the Nicolaitans, and you've been so open-minded that you've strayed from the authority of the Word of God. You're beginning to dismiss text altogether, and instead allow your mind, your values, your convictions to be shaped by the culture around you and by how you feel. This morning, if there's unconfessed sin in your life that you've rationalized, you've justified, or you simply covered over, I would implore you to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit who calls out to you, repent. And if you've allowed your beliefs and your values to be shaped by the temples of social opinion, and you've blended your faith with the value systems of the world around us, would you fall on your knees today? And would you plead for God's mercy? You see, my friends, salvation isn't just about a ticket to heaven. It's not just about securing your, your place there and, and then allowing you to continue to live your life in whatever way you want to live it. No, God, the same God who deposited his purity into your account in exchange for your sin, desires to make true in you what he has already said to be true of you. He desires, through the power of his Holy Spirit and his word at work in your life, to make you holy. He desires to make you like his son. Would you pray?